everyone. Today's scripture reading is taken from John 13 verses 1 to 11 and John 14 verses 1 to 7. Jesus washes the disciples' feet. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part of me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. Jesus comforts his disciples. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. For my Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Well, good morning, and happy Mother's Day to all of you moms uh, watching. Today being Mother's Day, we can intentionally celebrate uh, the women in our lives who hold that special role. Uh, but as it's been said uh, already this morning, it's also a time um, that we, we can take a moment to remember and reflect fondly about the moms who are no longer with us here physically. And I like to think that we can celebrate that by thinking about what we would do with them if they were here today. So however you celebrate, happy Mother's Day to you. This morning, we are continuing our conversation on the different I am statements that Jesus uses to show us who he is and his role in our lives. And today we get to actually talk about the time when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But let's pray before we do. So Father, we thank you for your presence here with us this morning. Help us to hear from you today as we consider the words that we have heard read and uh, the desires that you have for us. Amen. When I was a kid growing up, I really struggled with school. I had undiagnosed ADHD, and for anyone who knows what that's like, it makes learning in a classroom significantly harder. 
But the thing was, I didn't really understand or know what made learning for me so hard. All I was told as a kid was that I was being really lazy and that I needed to try harder. But no matter how hard I tried, my focus never lasted more than a few seconds. And so because of this, I felt a lot of shame as a kid and I struggled with the expectations that were on me and my self-worth. Through a variety of different moments, I eventually had no more effort to give to school. And when I looked around at my peers, I was actually the only one in our class who, whose desk needed to be right against the teachers because I just couldn't sit still and I had some behavior problems. And at some point, I was even offered extra resource help, which ended up actually being really good for me academically. But it only made me feel more like an outcast. Because the other kids that were with me in these extra resource um, help rooms, you know, they were, they were kids who had reasons for why they needed help and why they were there. But I didn't. And so all of this made school not a great place for me. It felt very unsafe growing up. But there was this one person, this one guy, who helped make it feel a bit more bearable. And his name is Sean. And Sean was my childhood best friend. Now, Sean was the type of kid that you wanted to be around your kid. He was incredibly kind-hearted, and together, you know, we, it felt like we were brothers growing up. When Sean and I had met, it was on the first day of grade one at this new school in Brampton. And initially, we didn't really like each other, and actually got into a small fist fight uh, during recess. And I, I won, and I felt very good and proud of myself for that day. But afterwards, my mom took me to the park, and, and Sean's mom had taken him to the park as well. And, and I saw Sean there, and I'm like, oh no, is this round two? I'm going to get in trouble with my mom. But it my attitude immediately shifted the minute I saw Sean playing with Lego, because Lego is the most fun toy. You know, and, and this Lego, it changed how I felt about Sean. And all of a sudden, this mutual love for, for Lego made us best friends. When we were in grade two, there was this day that it was raining. And so for indoor recess, our class actually was allowed to be in the library. And during our free time, I wanted to read this book because I really liked thinking about the food in it. But the problem was that I couldn't read, and I couldn't find anyone to read this book for me. See, reading was a significant struggle for me because of my ADHD. Reading was something that grade two Jeremy literally believed was impossible for him. But on this day, Sean actually wanted to read the same book as me and actually said he wanted to help me read it. And so together, you know, we sat next to each other on this big rocking chair, and, we, and together we read Green Eggs and Ham. And that was my first time being able to successfully read a book. Sean was also the person who taught me how to ride a bike. Sean, knowing my bike situation, invited me over after school a few times a week, and he would set up this hockey net on his driveway, and he would just shoot hockey, I don't know if they were balls or not, but he was just taking shots on the neck. And while he was doing that, he let me borrow this bike, and he lived in this little court area. And while he was taking shots, I would literally just ride this bike, or attempt to ride this bike, in circles. And I'd fall often. And every time Sean saw me struggle or get really, really frustrated, what he would do is he would either get on another bike or, or come with me and, and give me tips or, or encourage me, or he would get me to take a break and I would either take shots on him or, or be in the way um, while he took shots on me. Both were awful. I have horrible accuracy with a hockey stick, and I don't like 
things flying at my face. So that was fun. But eventually, with some time, I was able to ride a bike without falling and pedaling at the same time. Now, I can't say for sure that I wouldn't have learned or had those experiences without Sean. But I do know he provided me a space free of the anxiety and shame that I felt in most other settings. These feelings had prevented me from growing in those ways and growing in other ways too. But those little successes, while minor, in the overall of my life, they gave me something to remember when I felt trying would lead to failure. More than that, it added to the depth of friendship that Sean and I shared. And so, you know, today I can even share countless other stories with him, but that's really not the point. See, Sean's friendship allowed me to become a better person. But really, it's more like he helped me become more of myself. The relationships that we have with other people, they have significant impact on our physical, mental, and spiritual health. But not all relationships are good for us. Some relationships are unhealthy, and, and they can lead to moments of significant hurt or pain. And when relationships are unhealthy, sometimes it's because at least one of the two people in that relationship or friendship are operating from their own place of personal hurt or trauma. But on the complete flip side of that, good and healthy relationships can be places of great healing. They can be places of relief from the greatest of stresses. They can provide comfort and joy and even prevent loneliness and isolation. I can imagine many of us feel that truth when we think about the effects of the pandemic, COVID-19, and some of the events over the past couple years. Relationships are important, and they're meant to be important and valued by us. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And this statement for a long time has signified the relationship that we have with Christ in our journey with him. And as Greg talked about previously, Jesus as the gate means he is a place of security and the fullness of life for us as his sheep. And as the good shepherd, he leads us through the variety of experiences we have in life, leading us back to himself. And while all of that is true, Jesus is claiming uh, that he is the way, the truth, and the life here. It also challenges us on what we understand that to actually mean. Because for as long as we have focused on our relationship with Christ in this way, we have also understood his leading to simply look like being a good person and not doing bad things. The sacrifice Jesus made on the cross not only allows us to enter a relationship with him, but it also frees us from the constraints of our brokenness and sin. And the influence of sin affects us all differently. But however it looks, there are always consequences that are both obvious and inconspicuous and easily missed. Much of our tradition has understood the fallen nature of humanity and sin to operate on a moral and ethical framework. And the conversation of sin in the church has often been diluted to one that's primarily concerned with people following what is believed to be the rules or the right way of living. And this then becomes what is known as the way of Christ, moral living and being a good person. And, there's, and a lot of that is because we're able to put biblical reasoning 
or rationalize arguments as form of questions to prove the point. Ironically, the religious leaders who crucified Jesus had a similar mentality to observing and following rules. And while a lot of sin does involve bad things and what is understood as unethical and immoral, sin is much more complex and not easily understood. In the passages we read this morning, we are reminded of the moments Jesus had with his disciples right before his crucifixion. And to celebrate this last Passover feast, with feast, uh, to celebrate the last Passover feast he will have with these friends of his, Jesus does and says some things that are very strange, and they didn't make too much sense. But he tells them that they'll get it later, so not to worry. See, the disciples at this point believed in Jesus as Messiah, but the reality of what that meant was not what they were expecting. The understanding was an eventual reclaiming of the promised land. Jesus was supposed to free the Jewish people from the oppression of the Romans by force. This was a person, this was the person to rule over and continue David's throne, the king of the Jews. And during dinner, Jesus does this weird thing. The king of the Jews, he rises up from supper and he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel tied around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. <clears throat> I can only imagine how awkward of a situation this must have been for these disciples who had been following Jesus and believe him to be the king of the Jews, to experience this king of the Jews now having to wash uh, their feet. Peter is the only one who reacts, or at least it says that we, he reacts, and it, it, I think this shows us a bit of what most of them were probably feeling and thinking. Because Peter questions Jesus and he tries to stop him. He's essentially saying to Jesus, do you know who you are? What are you doing washing my feet? I should be washing yours. I'm not good enough for this. No, you will not wash my feet. And Jesus responds to him, you know, it's if you don't let me do this, you can't be with me. You can't be a part of me. It doesn't seem as though Jesus had any Lego like my friend Sean. But what he said made Peter's attitude change really quick. And Peter's response is a bit more ecstatic. It's, you know, then wash the rest of me too. You know, my hands and my, my head. Almost as if being cleaned more by Jesus helps, us, helps him to be closer to him. Now what Jesus says next is really interesting. He says those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. See, Jesus is identifying Peter as all but sinless, with the exception of his feet, which only Jesus could clean. And John doesn't leave Judas as a plot twist towards the end, so we know that the second part of this statement, right, that though not every one of you, it really meant Judas needed a bath. And there's an important contrast that exists when we look at both Peter and Judas following these moments. Because both make choices that on the forefront make us question why one is cleaner than the other. All four Gospels indicate that, at the time of, uh, that as the time of Passover neared, the chief priests desired to arrest Jesus. And when we follow Judas, you know, there's a lot of speculation for the reasons of his betrayal. Money might have been a factor, 
But as Sam had pointed out a few weeks ago, it's questionable whether the amount that Judas was given would have been an alluring amount worth betraying. But reasons aside, ultimately Judas' role is identifying Jesus to the religious leaders. Looking at Judas's role purely at face value, what is it he does wrong? After all, isn't Judas, you know, isn't what Judas doing, you know, isn't he just telling the truth? If we take out the Messiah factor in this scenario, what did, what exactly did Judas do wrong? In terms of something being good or bad, would it not have also been wrong if Judas misled them to think it was someone else? Because then it would be lying. So why does Judas really need a bath? When we look at Peter following the washing, Jesus alludes to his death and betrayal by Judas. But he also leaves a new commandment with the disciples. And so John 13, 33 continues saying, My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must too love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow, but you will follow later. And Peter again asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus looks at him and answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Now again, Peter is clean, except for his feet. And in this moment, Jesus is predicting his denial, which we know happens before the night is over. While John doesn't record it, Matthew shows us that Peter and a few others were with Jesus at this time. And when he was praying, Peter and the other disciples kept falling asleep in the garden of Gethsemane. In Jesus' final moments before he was crucified, Peter could not see that this person he loved, Jesus, needed emotional and spiritual support from him. And then in these final moments leading up to being arrested, Jesus shows us, you know, he didn't really want what was coming, but that he was willing to go because that was where God was leading him. And where he needed Peter, Jesus was abandoned, ironically, by the one who said he'd lay his life down to follow. Peter's other significant moment is when Jesus is arrested in John 18. It says, uh, John 18 says, John 18.10 says, Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, I think this person, Malchus, would have disagreed with us on who is dirtier between the two. But if we're really looking to compare both Peter and Judas, Peter's actions, seem, actions seem seemingly outweigh Judas's if we're looking at this at face value and judging this on a standard of right and wrong. So why does Judas need a bath? <clears throat> Sin is complex. And if we're trying to make this about following rules, we end up falling into the same trap as the religious leaders who crucified Jesus. Rules are important, but this is about relationship. 
Jesus gives us something more. And so in the beginning of chapter 14, Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that where I'm going, that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may know where I am going, or where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus leads us back to himself because life and creation was originally meant to be experienced with him. But sin was in the way of that. Our relationships with Christ, in our relationships with Christ, we are led to an understanding that in God's, give, uh, God's kingdom, we, we are given room to grow into the people he created us to be while he gently leads us in that journey. Sam often calls this the buffer of grace. And it's about the desires and intentions of our heart that allow us to know how to follow Jesus, his way. To know him as truth and to experience him as life. Peter's actions aren't justifiable. But he had this relationship with Jesus that led him back in humility even after all of Peter's misunderstandings about himself and who he thought he was supposed to be for Jesus. Because the kingdom of God is not a power struggle. And why that's important to know is because sin misleads us into believing that whatever form of power that is important to us is worth whatever it is we have to do in order to secure and receive it. In the washing of their feet, Jesus sets up the backdrop for, for the importance of this new commandment, to love others as he has loved them. Because unconditional love doesn't operate from a place of hierarchy or privilege. It operates from a place of vulnerability and humility. This is exemplified in Jesus further when we look at you know, the results of both Judas and Peter's actions. Judas's intent to surprise and betray Jesus failed as did Peter's decision to take up arms and protect through a means of force. And so Jesus enters and accepts this sentence of death willingly. He literally admits and says, if you're here for me, it is me. Let's go. Almost like he has something to do in a few days, and they're making him late. See, death is humanity's ultimate fear, and power is used as a means of experiencing life, on a spectrum between extreme happiness and incredible suffering, which allows people to either enjoy life or suffer. The crucifixion of Jesus is the highest level of human power being exhorted, or one of, because to control whether someone lives or dies is the full extent of control and power that we have in this world, because without God, there isn't anything beyond death. Because once a person dies, they don't come back, usually. And this moment is the greatest thing 
that sin can lead us to want and to do. Jesus is sentenced to death, and the reasoning is justified by the rules and the theology of the religious leaders. But what we fear in death has no power over God. Jesus gives everything up, and in the end allows for another way in our journey of becoming. Following Jesus in this way, we too become people like my friend, whose humility and unconditional love allowed me to feel safe when I didn't really feel that way regularly. And as I invite the uh, worship team back up, um, this is the thought that I want us to, to ponder and end on. The path of sin misleads us through lies that seem like truth and gives us a life that leads and ends with death. But Jesus gives us a better way to follow, one that goes towards truth, a truth that we can trust and know is real, which allows us to experience the fullness of life that extends beyond death. And all of that is captured in the joy of growing in our humility with Jesus in relationship. Amen.